Hi everyone, and welcome back to Carry the One Radio. I'm Ben, and you're listening to the seventh installment of our Young Scientist Spotlight series, where we feature grad students, postdocs, staff researchers, and other early career scientists. Today, you'll hear from Dr. Deborah Kamin-Mukaz, a postdoc at the University of Vermont. I spoke with Dr. Kamin-Mukaz about her work on the Reasons for Geographic and Racial Differences in Stroke, or REGARDS, project. We also discussed social determinants of health and how racism both in science and society contribute to disparities in health outcomes for Black Americans. Dr. Kamin Mukaz and I also talked about how she became a scientist and what it means to her. I learned a ton in conversation with Dr. Kamin Mukaz, and I'm sure you will too. Enjoy. This this this, this is Carry the One Carry the One Radio, the science podcast, igniting scientific curiosity. From the University of California, California. San Francisco. So my name is uh, Deborah Kamimukas, and uh, I am a postdoc at uh, the University of Vermont. First off, could you uh, just give a quick overview of what it is that you study? Uh, currently, I am uh, working as a REGARDS researcher. The REGARDS is a national and uh, NIH-funded cohort study that uh, is trying to understand uh, racial and geographic disparities in stroke and related diseases. Within the regards, I am uh, doing quite a few things. Mostly I'm looking at biomarkers of cardiovascular and uh, cardiometabolic disorders. And uh, I am also doing a little bit of work on the COVID-19 and uh, doing a little bit of work on uh, uh, telomere lengths. So basically it's just a lot of epidemiology and uh, medical sciences type of work. Um, what does a, a sort of typical day in the lab look like for you? It's more so data analysis. We have a huge lab, one of the biggest labs when it comes to the work that we do uh, in terms of biomarkers and so forth. Uh, at the University of Vermont, you will get data related to the diseases themselves, uh, data related to biomarkers of the diseases, and also data related to social determinants of health and also like uh, socioeconomic status and so forth. So my work here is uh, to understand all these different interactions, especially the interactions linked to racial disparities in cardiovascular and cardiometabolic health and uh, biomarkers, and also including uh, some of these other social factors. Like what exactly defines a biomarker? What is a biomarker exactly? I don't know if there's an easy definition or not. I don't know if there is an easy definition. Uh, I can give examples of biomarkers. So we talk a lot about information and coagulation when it comes to uh, cardiovascular and cardiometabolic disorders. And uh, we have been talking about information and coagulation when it comes to COVID-19. So one of the biomarker, which is basically a biological protein, just something biologically related. One of the biomarkers that I'm currently studying is D-dimer. D-dimer is uh, basically, in order for the blood blood clot to get uh, formed, you have the clot itself, uh, and then you have this mesh. So if you break down the mesh, you have D-dimer. So it's, uh, it's just a fragment of uh, the protein. And the dimer is, uh, obviously, it's a part of coagulation. So biomarkers are pretty much something that's um, uh, associated with some of these biological uh, pathways. 
But then whatever happens inside can be influenced by what happens outside. So we are trying to understand what's, what's that. Yeah, in terms of all of the other factors that aren't just, you know, your proteins and your genetics, but also the world that you're living the, in? Yes, the world that you live in. That's where we look at racial disparities and so forth. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that. I mean, I, I don't know the hard numbers, but I know there's a, a lot of pretty severe racial disparity in cardiovascular mm -hmm. health, especially, and in COVID-19. Yes. Um, is, would you describe a little bit about sort of what you're seeing there? Yes, uh, like you said, the, the numbers are pretty frightening, especially when it comes to COVID-19 severity and COVID-19 death. We're also looking at stroke. Uh, uh, we're looking at diabetes. We are looking at uh, all these other diseases really. Basically, it's just the entire outlook uh, disproportionately affects uh, Black people compared to white people. So there you have all these biological things that are happening and uh, we are trying to figure out if some of these biological issues are linked to uh, different types of environmental factors. When you look at inflammation, one of the biomarkers is uh, mediate the difference in uh, stroke risk. So basically, the effect of inflammation in this excess of stroke risk in Black people is uh, potentially explained by all these risk factors, including social determinant of health or like uh, social uh, socioeconomic uh, status. So how do we go about unlinking all of this? This is where we have to rely on obviously data science, but also our understanding of biology and our understanding of what we see in the world, which makes epidemiology a very complex uh, science. Yeah, it is extremely complicated. What kind of information comes in and then what exactly do you do to it? Like, I am not a statistics expert by any means, but I'd be interested to hear just sort of like on a very basic level how huh. analysis so so you usually, uh, I think at the most basic level is we ask people these questions about uh, like socioeconomic status. And uh, so at baseline, you get uh, data like socioeconomic, demographic, blood pressure. Are you taking hypertensive medication, your glucose level uh, and, and, so, and so forth. Now we follow them and then we also get some blood measures so that we can measure these biomarkers. And then we follow them through time and then see if they are going to develop any type of diseases. So hypertension, uh, diabetes, uh, stroke, and, and so forth. Now, I know what you were at baseline when you were healthy. Now I'm going to see if there is a relationship between these uh, these baseline factors or baseline variables and the disease. So that's basically what we are doing, trying to see if there's a relationship and then try to see how complex the relationship is because these are chronic diseases that we are dealing with. Let's, let's talk about race because race is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a big factor. What happens is that for some biomarkers, you can have an association between a biomarker and a disease that is stronger for black people and non-existent for white people. 
that tells you that you are dealing with a very specific factor over there. So now you are trying to understand is it's linked to biology, uh, to uh, genetics and so forth. Or when we talk about racial disparities. So the same thing that we did at baseline, I know black person, white person, follow them through time. This number of people develop stroke that are white, this number of people develop stroke that are black. Try to figure out if there is an, an association between race and uh, the disease and, he, and if uh, black people have a higher risk or the disease. Now, if they do, now you have to, to explain why do they do that? This is when you start looking at mediators. Are there things that are in the pathway between race and the disease? Sometimes the pathway is more complex. It just gets very complicated because now you have to deal with statistics and biology because things can make sense statistically, but if the biology is not working, something is wrong. And we are, here we are only talking about association. We're not talking about causality because causality is something that is much, much harder to achieve. There are a bunch of principles. I think epidemiologists have tried to create this criteria, I think eight or nine that you have to follow to even infer that you are dealing with causality. And it makes a lot of sense though. You must have to be extremely careful about like, like you can have strong risk factors or strong predictors that a disease will happen, but you know, yeah. that yes, if that's causing anything. That, yes, and then like even the way that you account for confounders. So when you run your association, if you don't include some of these confounders, uh, might throw away uh, your results. But then you have this other issue when how do you tell that the factor is a confounder or is, is a mediator? So now you have to go back to biology for it to make sense in terms of confounding and, uh, and the mediation. So yes, it's, um, we do use common sense and then we do use data science in order to guide us. In an ideal world, what, what would you like to be able to do with the data? Uh, in an ideal world, and I think that, that we have shown over and over again that these racial disparities do exist and that these racial disparities do affect uh, biological markers. And uh, a huge part of it is due to uh, social determinants of health. In an ideal world, people will actually listen to what we have to say and start implementing policies or creating clinical trials that actually uh, include all these diverse populations. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, do you think it's just like a issue of political will? Yeah, I think, I think it's, uh, it's very complex. It's, a, it's an interaction of a lot of system. I think, uh, systems. I think we cannot only put the blame on uh, the political realm. It's not only their fault, it's also academia, it's also the pharmaceutical companies and so forth. In academia, uh, I'm, that's why I'm so proud to be a regards researcher because we did um, recruit about, about half of our sample population is, uh, is black. So if you don't have, if you don't make the effort of recruiting uh, a black participants or uh, people from other communities uh, within your samples, you don't have these answers. My goal here is to make sure that at least within this 
academic space, I'm doing my best to make sure that we are looking at these racial disparities and that we are looking at them in a very respectful way, understanding that these are impacting people's lives and these people agreed to become part of our cohort study. So that's why I do what I do, but I don't necessarily have an answer as to how the, the systems work together to make it so hard to understand some of these factors or to yeah. deal with some of these factors, yes. Yeah, historically, I guess, what is one of the big issues been with, you know, genome-wide association studies with, with epidemiology and with clinical trials? It's just total exclusion of black people, of other racial groups. It's highly uh, problematic when you think about it. Uh, it's, it's very complicated. In a way, uh, black people have not had the best experiences when it comes to being part of uh, studies. Uh, so you have Tuskegee, you have uh, the Heller cells. Uh, so you see that it's, uh, it's complicated. And that's why we have to advocate for a more diverse scientific force because uh, I'm not saying that that will make it possible for people to start uh, mistrusting the science because they are right not to trust uh, the scientific world for what they did, but at least it, uh, it gives a voice, it uh, gives you a different uh, outlook on how to conduct science and how to include uh, Black people or uh, people of other uh, communities of color uh, within these studies. So, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something that you said, I think, was uh, like respectfully including Black people in your cohort studies. I think that's, yeah, a really, really important point. Yeah, and it's been amazing. Uh, the cohort, uh, the regard study has uh, followed our participants for years, and uh, they're still willing to open their houses and uh, answer some of our questions, precisely because we respect them and that we treat they're not for us, it's not, they're not data. These are people. So we treat that with respect. And it's, I think that's very, very important is uh, the way that I do science is not removed. I don't think of science as this uh, blank space where uh, racism and all the isms and the, uh, the, 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 the phobias don't happen. No, it's, uh, it's very much part of this culture we live in. So you really have to be uh, conscientious as a scientist when you do your work and just keep that in mind that, why am I doing this? Is it okay? What am I saying? And so forth. Your work on race-based disparities is mostly centering on US population, the regards project yes. is in the US. Mm -hmm. I guess, I mean, coming from DR the Congo, to the U.S., do you have any insight, or do you know epidemiologically, like what uh, like race-based disparities exist elsewhere? Are they totally different in countries that are majority black? Is it like yeah? Which is uh, so? This is has been a strong argument for the very strong effect of uh, social determinants of health, because there is a concept known as acculturation that people, the more American, and when it comes to black migrants, the more black American you become, the more you see these factors, because then you can 
see issues related to race and and all other complicated things. So I haven't necessarily uh, worked with uh, populations on the African continent, but during my PhD, I did work with African migrants populations in the United States. The simplest way to define acculturation is the longer you are here in the United States, the more likely you are to, uh, to have, to start getting uh, these uh, disparities, they start showing up. But then acculturation in itself is a more complex uh, concept, so we have to figure out the best, a better way to actually quantify it. Because I do believe that following the trajectory of uh, the health of people of African descent from the African continent to the United States and so forth. Obviously, these are totally different populations in terms of culture, in terms of history and so forth. But I think it's a, it's a beginning to start giving us an idea as to what is happening there. So what happens to people? We already know that on the African continent, you have a specific, specific lower rates of some of these diseases. But then when you come to the United States, you start seeing an increase. And then you see like uh, striking disparities in uh, the black uh, population here in the United States. So something is happening there and we, have, we know what is happening. We just have to figure yeah. out the different pathways that are, uh, that are involved. Yeah, and hopefully uh, figure out a way to get people to, to start addressing them. Yes, yes. I mean, we talk about it. We, uh, we, we share them. Uh, we hope that people listen. And I think part of it is because science is not necessarily accessible to everybody. So we have to make things easy for people to understand. And I think a lot of journals are moving towards these graphical abstracts where you just, you have an image of what is happening there. Once you see that image, it stays with you. And I think it's making it more accessible. We also have to, to make it free so that people can read it. But that's another story. Yeah, that doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense to me that, that journals are paywalled. It, it, yeah. Yes, it's, uh, yeah, it's very complicated there. What led you to science as your, your career path? I am originally from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And I keep on telling people that I was trained to be a scientist and I was trained to go to grad school and get a PhD and so forth, which also speaks to a certain level of privilege because I went to one of the best schools in my country, in my state. And I was, uh, while I was there, I, uh, in, um, I think it was in the sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I decided to pick science as a major. And then from there, I went on choosing biology and chemistry. And uh, while I was doing my studies, I was, I guess, handpicked or because of my previous grades, I, was, uh, I spent a lot of time uh, with my teachers. And then eventually I placed third in the country for the national state exams, which is a lot of people, a lot of students. So when that happened, 
uh, I was like, okay, now what do I do next? And I came to the United States and got um, uh, like a degree in biology for my undergrad. Then I went on to get my graduate degree in uh, biological sciences, my master's degree. And then I switched to an interdisciplinary program in medical sciences with a very strong focus on epidemiology. So yes, that's how my <laughs> journey happened. Yeah, no, that's, that's pretty incredible. Um, so the switch from a general biology sort of focus to, so were you like a wet lab bench scientist and then you turned yeah. to, you know? Yes, yes. So I was, uh, yes, I did a lot of uh, molecular and uh, cellular biology. So it's a, it's a funny story. So when I applied uh, for grad school, I did apply for doctoral degrees in biology and also master's degree or actually one master's degree <laughs> uh, in biological sciences. I, uh, and they were all funded, which is very important, always important for me. And uh, I got into a doctoral program at Loyola University. And then I got into the master's program in biological sciences at the University of uh, Delaware. I knew I loved sciences. I knew I loved uh, research. I knew I loved some of these aspects of biology, but I was not sure I loved lab work. So I decided to, instead of going for the doctoral program, I decided to do my master's program. And then once I did get my master's program, I, uh, I felt I was convinced at the end, almost at the end that I was more passionate about health disparities and epidemiology and my program was offering something in medical sciences. So I focused on cardiovascular and cardiometabolic epidemiology while I was there, basically. Oh, yeah, no, that's a, that's a interesting transition to go through and probably, um, and it was it an easy decision to make? The, the, the yeah, I mean, it's uh, the reasons why, like, for me, science is extremely personal. The, right. Like, what I do is extremely personal. It's a passion of mine. It's truly love. I knew that doing a PhD was uh, a huge commitment. Uh, and I knew that I'd I loved uh, cardiovascular health because I was, when I was doing my master's, I was working on platelet and coagulation. So I just decided that, you know what, I have to do something that I love related to cardiovascular, cardiometabolic health and related to health disparities and epidemiology. So for me, it was an easy decision because I had time to think about it. Yeah. What are some like misconceptions about how epidemiology works or like how the kind of work you do like what what do you wish people understood that they don't i guess about your work uh, i don't know i think the hardest part has been uh this this entire covid situation uh dealing with family members who don't necessarily understand how numbers work yeah. how what is risk what is prevalence and what is what are all these confounding factors and how things interact with each other. So there's a lot of misconception as to what these numbers mean in a large, in larger scale. So it's been interesting to see how epidemiology and these numbers have been misused. And also the other thing, I think somebody mentioned it on, um, on, uh, on Twitter, on Instagram that right now people are actually participating in the scientific process where 
you have to you have you do something you're not sure what it means and then it's just it's a lot more complicated and i don't think that people realize how complex and uncertain uh, science is so i wish that people knew more about the scientific process yeah, that's a constant frustration of mine is, yeah, now everyone is seeing the fact that scientists don't really know what we're doing 100% of the time or even like 50% of the time, just trying to figure stuff out, right? That's the yes. But yeah. I'm used to seeing a headline that's like, you know. Here's yeah, and, and I, think, I think one thing that I did get to appreciate or I have come to appreciate during this period is uh, sci uh, science communication because they do so much work. And I think the media paid more attention to them because they really translate what we are doing into a simpler term, uh, terms so that people can get acquainted with science. And yes, it's a, it's a field that should really be explored a little bit more because they are so important. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty important. That's why we are doing what we're doing. But it's true, uh, especially right now. I think everyone's looking for information and how it's conveyed. Yes. Is so important. Definitely, yes. Yeah. Um, what do you find the most uh, satisfying and the most frustrating about your research? I think the most satisfying part is finding these answers and just getting excited when you look for answers like just the, the like reading other people's works and just realizing that, wait, they did that, that's exciting. And then when you uh, figure out something exciting about your research project, you're like this new, this association, this mediation, what does it mean uh, when you look at the, uh, the larger picture? That is very exciting. What is frustrating is, uh, I don't think, I, as, as I usually say that science is not what frustrates me. It's the external world with everything that does frustrate me, that does influence how I do my science. The, the, the added pressure, the added uh, stress that makes it hard for me to completely focus on my science. So yes, science itself, the research part itself is amazing. It's just the external the external parts, just the, the human interactions that is very interesting at times, yes. Yeah, no, definitely. So I wanted to ask more broadly, just what has your experience been like, um, like moving through grad school into your postdoc, um, like as you go from place to place, how has it been each institution you've been to? I am very happy here. I have an amazing uh, advisor, uh, Dr. Mary Cushman. Uh, like she's brilliant, she's amazing, she's a very uh, supportive mentor. I, uh, my experience at uh, the University of Delaware where I was a graduate student was, uh, and also at uh, Luther College where I was doing, when I was doing my undergrads, it was mixed. I'm a black woman, so that comes with added pressure, especially in academia, where you are navigating a space that was not necessarily that was not necessarily created for you. So uh, it's uh, it's makes it interesting. It's not to say that I did not have amazing experiences, but I think some things that should not have happened did happen. That made it a little bit hard for me to uh, navigate academia. Yeah. 
that's fair. There's a lot of, I feel like, unspoken like rules and power dynamics that are never explicitly like, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Academia is a very interesting space. Uh, it's a space, I think you have, like, yeah, like in order to understand it, you have to understand that it's a space where supposedly knowledge happens. And uh, ultimately, or the way that uh, this institutional, institutionalized racism works is to say that knowledge only belongs to white male of a certain uh, privileged background. Everybody else to different uh, degrees is outside of that. So once you get there, you are going to encounter uh, some type of resistance and depending on whatever part of your identity is in conflict with what is supposed to be knowledge within that, that realm. So yeah, it's, it's complicated, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, on a lighter note, what do you do when you're not doing your science? I am very passionate about makeup. I'm a millennial makeup and the fashion because I come from the Democratic Republic of the Congo where fashion is almost a religion, if not a religion. We are one of the originators of La Sap, which is basically dandyism. Um, like just dressing up and all that. And I think that has uh, it's been part of uh, Congolese culture for the longest. And I've tried to keep it as part of my identity when, yeah, when here in the United States. I also do like used to <laughs> before the COVID and before coming here, used to do a lot of uh, contemporary African dancing in college. I did dance with a group. Uh, so we did a lot of um, African music and, uh, and and so forth. So Afrobeat, which is the new thing now, I guess it was the old thing on the continent for the longest time. <laughs> so we're okay. But uh, I have that. And uh, I also do enjoy uh, music and uh, pop culture. Like I do feel that like people think of pop culture as being this thing that is like, you know, not elevated art or whatever. But I do think that pop culture is a reflection of, of society. So you understand pop culture, you understand society itself because we are reflecting like all these ideals of beauty or what is smart and interesting. You see them in, in pop culture. So I, I try to keep up with that and uh, I do reading. I wish I could travel more around the country, but with the COVID, it's not going to happen. And uh, just also trying to create these very strong communities of Black women in, um, in academia and also outside of academia and try to mentor people whenever I can. One thing I did want to talk about is just uh, uh, issues that are related to academia and racism, especially when it comes to black graduate students and um, other students of color. I think what is happening right now, which I'm happy uh, to be part of, is this, uh, like this collective effort from black people in these different uh, arenas of science or other fields, academic fields that are coming together. So we have had a lot of Black Week in X. So that's, that has been something that's been very interesting to me. And hopefully my hope is that people will see all these amazing 
scientists or these amazing researchers and and so forth educators and uh, uh, therapists and understand that they have to bring them in the fold because it's a loss of creativity excluding people who have a different understanding of the world is basically stopping us from uh, like uh, great, getting great inventions or advancing uh, sciences and so forth. So now we are dealing with a crisis and, and all that. So we need everybody in the fold in order to resolve this crisis. This episode was produced by me, Ben Mansky, with help from the rest of the Carry the One team. Thanks to Dr. Deborah Kamin-Mukaz for taking the time to chat. As Dr. Kamin-Mukaz mentioned, there's been a huge movement to highlight black scientists and professionals in a whole bunch of fields lately. If you're on Twitter, check out the accounts and corresponding hashtags for black and neuro, black and immuno, mental health, psychom, engineering, genetics, microbiology, botany, chemistry, and more. There's tons of virtual events, Zoom talks, and fantastic people to follow and learn from. Right now, through October 17th, it's Black in Cancer Week. Also mentioned in this episode were a couple of important moments in science history. First was the 1932 Tuskegee syphilis study, in which researchers secretly withheld medical treatment from black men for 40 years until being exposed in 1972. Second was the 1951 harvesting of Henrietta Lacks' cervical cancer cells without her consent, leading to the establishment of a cell line called HeLa. HeLa cells are still in use by scientists today. For more info, check out the links in the show notes on our website. Special thanks to David Cabral and Sama Ahmed for supporting us as science producers on our Patreon. You too can be a science producer by heading over to patreon.com slash carrytheone and donating what you can. You can find over a hundred more episodes on carrytheoneradio.com, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like our show? Tell your friends about us. Leave a review. Or find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook and start a conversation. And, as always, stay curious.